Good morning, folks. Uh, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Two weeks ago, I talked about the vital importance of hope. If there is no hope, remember we said, there's no point in carrying on. When people lose hope, they give up. And hope is particularly essential for our survival here in Zimbabwe because things are, to put it mildly, uh, rather difficult. And we need hope in order to fuel and to drive our endurance and our perseverance. And yet, we often cripple ourselves by adopting survival strategies that undermine hope. Remember, we talked about an example of that. We said we might be tempted to start neglecting God and withdrawing from our local church by cutting back on attendance or service or giving. And instead of building up harvest, we neglect it and channel our resources into things that we think will serve our survival better. Not a good plan. Why? Because Paul taught us that neglecting the purposes of God will strangle the life out of real hope not only on a personal level, but also it'll compromise our ability as a church to hold out a living hope to people who have no hope because they're headed to an eternal separation from God. And when our environment here at Harvest is not overflowing with hope, then we ourselves as individuals won't have hope and there's no hope for people beyond us and beyond our church. We this local church are the means that God has chosen to hold out hope in a hopeless country and a world for that matter. And so we learned from Romans 14 that the way we serve the purposes of God is by building up harvest in order to do so three things. The first thing that we do uh, in order to build, the reason why we build up harvest is in order to glorify God. We want to declare God as being the all-surpassing treasure of life. Nobody can actually see God, but in us, people can see the attributes, the glory, the majesty of God. And so our purpose in building up harvest is to make sure that we create a viable, healthy body that glorifies God. Then the next thing that we want to do is we want to bring praise to God. What does that mean? We want to attract people into our family 
so that they can join in this praise glorifying choir that we're all involved in. And then the third thing that we need to do is to overflow with hope so that people who have no hope are given hope and it gives them the perseverance to carry on in life and to put their hope in the right things. And then we learned um, about what we'll need in order to build up harvest. So the first thing we talked about was the motivation of a good example. And you'll find that when Craig or I or other people are preaching up at the front here, you'll find that we're often talking about things that you already know, but what we're trying to do is to stoke up motivation, excitement, to, to showcase the truth. Um, and you need to do that not only on a Sunday, but during the week. You need to reflect on the good example of Christ and the way that he handed up his rights and his privileges in order to build up the church. And so we talked about the importance of doing that. Reflect on Christ's motivational example. And then, of course, we need the encouragement of good teaching. And Paul told us that that comes from the Bible. The Bible is there to encourage us, to give us hope. And so we need to carry on doing that on a daily basis, reading the Bible, reflecting on the motivation of Christ's example. And then thirdly, the clutch of trust. Remember we said that unless we let out the clutch of trust, we're not going to be moving forward in the process of building up the church. Why do we need trust? Well, remember that hope is built on the promises of God. That's why our hope is certain. And of course, it's not just the promises of any God. This is our amazing God. This is the eternal, infinite God, the unchangeable God, the one who's perfect in power and perfection, in goodness and glory, the one through whom everything happens and is sustained. And then lastly, as we let out the clutch of trust, the power of the Holy Spirit floods in and enables us to build ourselves and to build others up. Now, when Paul wrote his letters to different churches, he was always addressing particular issues and problems. In Rome, one of the issues was disunity between Jewish and Gentile Christians because they weren't able to agree on whether it was necessary to follow the Old Testament code with regards to food and festivals. In Philippi, it was something different. This passage that we come to today, it was an external threat of persecution and an internal threat of discord and disunity. So let's take a look at that. In chapter 1, if you look there, chapter 1, verses 27 and 30, you can see that there's a clear reference to suffering as a result of persecution. He says there, it has been granted to you to suffer on behalf of Christ. And then he says, you can see that you're going through the same sufferings that I experienced. What experience did Paul have in Philippi? Publicly beaten, thrown into prison. So there was that external persecution. And then in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, this is what we read. He says, 
I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, referring to someone we don't know who it was, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. So there was that internal strife which seemed to be happening. There was grumbling that was happening there. So the issues were different, but although they were different, and although the churches were different, Paul always saw issues, this is important, in terms of their threat to the health of the church. Because a healthy church will fulfill the purposes for which God has established it. He could have told the Roman church that this unity would affect their comfort or their physical safety or their financial security, but he didn't. It's clear that what he was concerned about here was how it would affect the church's ability to glorify God, to draw in the lost and to hold out hope in a hopeless world. And this was also the case in the letter to the Philippians. He didn't say, look, I know you guys are being persecuted, so I want you to do X, Y, and Z in order to avoid a beating or to avoid being thrown into prison. Instead, he said, once again, he was concerned about how the issue of persecution would affect the church's ability to do what God had created it for. And that's what is on our heart as a leadership today. We don't want what is going on in Zimbabwe to affect our ability to fulfill the purposes that God has for us as a church here in this time and in this place. So what I'd like to do is to focus on three aspects of verses 12 and 13. This is essentially an exposition of those two verses. The purpose, the motivation, and the command. Let's start off with the purpose. Verse 12, therefore my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So first of all, there's a command here, and then there's a reason for the command. What is the command? It's continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he gives the reason for the command. In order to fulfill his good purpose. So there were issues in the church of persecution and disunity. Paul's solution is to encourage the Philippians to work out their salvation. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that looks like. But the reason for that command is not comfort, it's not security, it's not happiness. The reason is in order to, to fulfill his good purpose. Jesus had paid the price for their redemption so that they could fulfill God's purposes for them as a church. It's the same for us today. We are not our own. We belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. At this point, Paul assumes the Philippians know the purpose of the, of the church, and, um, and we learned what it was two weeks ago. We can say it in many different ways. Um, think of the time when, uh, when Jesus was speaking after Zacchaeus had been saved. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. 
there's a pretty good expression of what we are to do. That's why we glorify God. That's why we bring people into the chorus of praise. That's why we hold out an eternal hope because we want to see the lost saved. Now before we move on, I'd just like to make a few comments. Number one, notice that Paul commands work out your salvation, not work at your salvation. Once we've been saved, God has work for us to do. He has saved us so that we can do work to fulfill his purposes in our time and in our generation. But we do not do the work to get saved. We do the work because we have been saved. And I just have to to spend a little bit of time clarifying this because it's so important. Every one of us is looking in some way for righteousness. And that, that means right standing in our relationships with our parents, with our wives, with our children, with our community, with our teachers. We're looking for acceptability. We're looking for approval. We're looking for righteousness. And the danger is that we will start to use our work to achieve that righteousness with God so that we can get the sense that God approves of us and that we're acceptable to him and that he and that he loves us but what Paul is saying what Paul says to us and what the Bible says to us is that we obtain that right standing with God through faith in the work of Jesus Christ that puts us in right standing and then as an expression and an outflowing of that we then do the work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2, isn't it? One of my favorite verses, we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus to do good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And you know, when he said that, almost in the same breath just before, what he, would said, what he said was, you are saved by faith and not by works so that nobody could boast. So we're not faithed, saved by works. <laughs> that was rather amusing. We're not saved by works. We are saved to do works. Number two, can you see that both we and God are at work? He says, you, the Philippian church, you guys, continue to work out your salvation. And then why? Because it is God who works in you. So God is powerfully at work in us. He's set us free, he's changing us, he's empowering us, he's equipping us, and we respond by doing the work that he has planned in advance for us to do. It's a partnership. God is doing work in us, and we are also doing work. But number three, I love the work that God does. It says there that he works in us to will and to act. I need the power and the energy to act. I need wisdom and knowledge to act. And God provides that. He works in me to act. But I also need the will, listen to this, and the desire to act. I don't know about you, but my biggest problem is often a problem of the will. I simply don't want to do what God wants me to do. And at that point, we need to do it on a daily basis. I just come before the Lord and I say, Father God, you've said that you will work in me to will and to act. I'm not really willing, 
but I'm willing to be made willing. Please, work in me now. And then just before you even have a chance to think about it, just step out in obedience. And of course, the power will flow. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is that Paul begins verse 12, fourth comment, with the word therefore. And so what we learn from that is that what came before provides motivation for the command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what came before? It was the example of Christ. That was the motivation. Now, what I'd like to do is to try and shed some light on what Paul is doing here by viewing it through the lens of recent historical events. And as we proceed, you'll see where I'm heading. 6th of June. 2019 marked the 75th anniversary of the Normandy landings in World War II. It was the biggest seaborne invasion in history. It involved 156,115 troops. You can see I don't have the same genes as, as Jacob Zuma. I got that one out okay. Um, it, there's, there's normally about 150 people in church on a Sunday morning, sometimes a bit more. So that's a thousand of us being taken across the English Channel. 6,939 ships and la landing vessels, 2,395 aircraft, it's just mind-boggling. 867 gliders for carrying troops um, and provisions. So this day on the 6th of July 1944 has, was fittingly called D-Day, which stands for the Day of Days. This really was the Day of Days. And the intention of the D-Day landings was to establish a beachhead and a secure area in German-occupied France so that Allied armies and supplies could be landed there in order to start the arduous task of liberating the oppressed people of Europe and also to save the free world from Nazi tyranny. I don't know whether I need to labor the point, but just to highlight how evil Nazism was. Um, I read about some research which was done recently, and it was done on the basis of transport records in Poland. And they worked out that over a period of 100 days, 1,470,000 Jewish people were exterminated. If you can imagine, 10 people every minute, 24-7, for three months. That's the, that's the rate of extermination. That was the, the peak. That is more than 10 times any other genocide that has happened in the history of mankind. That rate is higher than that. The following letter was written by General Eisenhower to every soldier involved in D-Day. He wrote, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you're about to embark upon the Great Crusade, towards which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained and well-equipped and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. 
I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. There was a lot hanging on D-Day. A, su a successful landing would assure victory, even if it didn't win it. D-Day would turn out to be the most significant turning point of the war. Yes, there would still be a lot of fighting to do after D-Day, but without D-Day, victory could never have been achieved. This is a picture of Captain Skinner, a British soldier who participated in the D-Day landings. A few days before the landings, he wrote a letter to his wife and then he put it in his pocket. And this is the letter, I'd like to read it to you. It was read recently in the celebrations of, or, or the memorial of the, of the D-Day landings by Theresa May. He writes, Dear Gladys, my darling, this is a very difficult letter for me to write. As you know, something may happen at any moment and I cannot tell you when you will receive this. I had hoped to be able to see you during last weekend, but it was impossible to get away and all the things I intended to say must be written. I'm sure that anyone with imagination must dislike the thought of what's coming, but my fears will be more of being afraid than of what can happen to me. You, know, you and I have had some lovely years, which now seem to have passed at lightning speed. My thoughts at this moment, in this lovely Saturday afternoon, are with you all now. I can imagine you in the garden having tea with Janie and Anne and getting ready to put them to bed. Although I would give anything to be back with you, I have not yet had any wish at all to back down from the job we have to do. There is so much that I would like to be able to tell you, nearly all of the things which you've heard before many times but just to say that I mean it even more today. I'm sure that I will be with you again soon and for good. Please give my fondest love to my Anne and to my Janie. God bless and keep you all safe for me. The Allies identified five beaches in Normandy for the landings. They were all defended with fortifications, there were steel structures in the surf to hinder landing craft, and there were machine gun emplacements. And so the, the night before the landing, the coast was pounded with uh, just an absolutely cataclysmic bombing and naval shelling, the biggest in the history of the world. It was hoped that the barrage would pulverize the coastal defenses to make the landing safer. But unfortunately, many machine gun emplacements along the beach were left intact. And then strong winds blew many of the landing craft off target and into sectors that hadn't been bombed or shelled. Next, and still under the cover of darkness, paratroopers were dropped behind the enemy lines and troop carriers, the troop gliders, were launched. Um, in many instances, the gliders were unable to land safely and they crashed and some of the paratroopers landed in flooded fields and marshes where they drowned, dragged down by the heavy equipment they carried. Then, at break of day, the landing craft 
approached the beaches. Captain Skinner landed in, in Normandy on D-Day. He was carrying the letter to his wife, uh, and the next day his foxhole sustained a direct hit, and he died. So why would I tell you about D-Day? Why spend all this time on a history lesson um, talking about Captain Skinner? Well, he relinquished his safety and his comfort for the sake of the safety and comfort of his family his community, his country, and even for us today because the course of history would have been very different if Nazi tyranny had prevailed. In fact, he gave his life so that others might live. But here's the thing. His death could have been in vain in spite of the fact that D-Day was a success. How could that be the case? Well, I'll tell you. If subsequent troops had not continued the war, fighting up through France into Germany, and believe me, it was a savage fight, ultimate victory would never have been attained. Imagine if subsequent waves of soldiers had refused to fight for the sake of their home comforts and their beauty sleep. Imagine one of them bumping into Gladys Skinner at the corner shop. Why aren't you in France? Why haven't you gone across? Oh, I, I get seasick, you know, and it, I've got special dietary requirements. It just would have been so uncomfortable to go across there and fight. Those who came after Captain Skinner were called upon to fight so that the goal of ultimate victory and peace would be attained. And I'm sure by now you're beginning to see the parallels with Christ. Christ's death on the cross was D-Day. 
It truly was the day of days. Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ gave up his safety and comfort and he won that victory of victories. He won that turning point of turning points. He established a beach point on earth. But the war isn't over. And now that Jesus has returned to the Father, he expects us to carry on the fight in our generation. Jesus gave up everything to seek and save the lost and to free people from the tyranny of evil. That was his purpose in coming. And we are to continue fulfilling his good purposes in our generation. That's the way he set it up. We're the ones. It, it remains with us to continue the work and fight towards that final victory. May it never be, folks, that we at Harvest allow our safety or our comfort or our selfish ambition to prevent us from doing and completing what Jesus started. May we never allow his example to be unproductive in our lives. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So the example of Christ motivates us to complete the work that he started. He lived with purpose, God's good purpose, to seek and to save the lost and so is we, because our lives are not our own. Whatever is going on in Zimbabwe, we must not allow it to compromise Harvest's mission to fulfill God's good purpose for us and for the people around us. But what is the command we must follow in order to achieve that purpose? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is to say, do the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do as a person and also for us together as a community. Now I know that that's very, it's a very general command. It's a very open-ended command. But don't you think that given the example of Christ and the overarching purpose that God has for this church, that we can work out the specifics for us here at Harvest in 2020. Don't you think that you can work it out as well with the help of the Holy Spirit working in you to find out what it is that God has called you to do? Don't waste your time and your energy and your money and your resources on coping strategies and false hopes. We've been put on this earth, just as those soldiers that came in after Captain Skinner, we've been put on this earth to complete the victory. We need to find out what it is and what we're going to be doing um, in the next three weeks is we're going to be talking about our vision for 2020, about the things that we believe God has called us to do as a church to fulfill his purposes in our generation. Let's not allow what's going on in Zimbabwe to distract us from what God wants us to do. 
We need to be a community that's overflowing with hope and holding out hope to other people. We need to show people where to find real hope. And it's in Jesus Christ. That's where it is. He's already won the victory for us. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that every person here who has put his or her faith in you and in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I thank you that they can stand righteous, in right standing with you. I thank you that they can stand acceptable to you, not rejected, but embraced and brought into the family of God. I thank you that this was done on the D-Day when Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead on the cross. We, we are just so grateful for that. Oh, thank you, Father. We exalt you. We praise you. And Father, we just know that you bought us at such a tremendous price to do the work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. I thank you that 2020 is a year of hope. It's a year in which we can have expectation. Um, it's a year in which we can be excited because whatever's going on in this world, the mission is still the same. It's not about our safety. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our prosperity in material terms. It's about getting on with the work that you have called us to do. And so, Father, I, I just i am so excited about this. And, Father, I, I just think of the many different ministries that are represented in this church. I, I can just hear Tony saying amen to what I'm praying and, and the, 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 the marriage ministry that will be starting um, next week. We pray for your blessing on it. We pray that they would fulfill the purposes of God for them and for this church um, in this time and in this generation. Father, we think of, of body and soul. Um, Unfortunately, the video didn't work, but we'll be playing it next week. We, we pray that um, Kate and Haley and others who are involved would be equipped to fulfill the purposes of God in this time and in this generation. Father, so many things going on. Father, we think of Trevor Loudon Stool heading off to um, America in a few weeks' time to raise support for the, the outreach that they're doing in the rural areas of Zimbabwe. Father, please equip them, empower them, fulfill them, help us as a church to support them. And Father, also as we just talk about in the next few weeks what we're going to be doing, we pray that we would be inspired. Lord, help us to be a second wave of invaders on the beachhead that will carry on the work that the first invasion started. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.